0: appreciate you guys. Um, I know right now that one of you is having a significant crisis because there's a coffee cup sitting right there. And it would just be weird for you to run up there and grab it now. <laughs> so hopefully you can manage. <laughs> we, uh, we're going to pick up the book of Romans in chapter 9. Uh, if, you, uh, if you've been around for a little while, we started back at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans. At the, uh, I believe it was the first week of October. Uh, we took March off because we did a month of prayer. So, so it's been five months that we've actually been in the Book of Romans, and we've made it halfway. Way to go, us! We're on the downhill. We're on the downhill turn. At long last, we have made it to uh, perhaps the most perplexing and uncomfortable chapter in all of the Bible. So, if you've got one with you, uh, or if you've got one on your device, your smartphone, I'd encourage you to uh, to read along. Uh, there is a lot of context that has to be understood in order to understand Romans chapter 9. Uh, in fact, if you have a study Bible, you may notice when you're in Romans chapter 9, there's a ton of footnotes, references to Old Testament verses, uh, things that happened before Paul wrote this letter. It is perplexing. So I'll say this, if you get to the end of it and you're thinking to yourself, man, I don't, I don't know how to feel about that, it's the most perplexing chapter in the Bible, in my opinion, so... So don't feel overwhelmed by that. Uh, It becomes more clear over time as we begin to understand the context of the biblical narrative uh, deeper and deeper. So uh, judging by the fact that it took us five months to get through the first eight chapters, I'm guessing that we're not going to capture 2,500 years of context before Paul wrote this letter. Uh, today. We're not going to tackle that today. But what we are going to do is we're just going to look at the bookends, because uh, he makes kind of an introductory remark at the beginning of the chapter, and then he makes sort of a, a summary statement at the end with some supporting stories in between. So, uh, so that's kind of how we're going to tackle it today. <clears throat> Most of the Bible is, is a narrative. It's the it's story of how God interacts with people. Now, there's exceptions in there. There's Books that are uh, more poetic. Uh, In this case, we find a spot where um, it's really not part of the narrative. It's theological. It's almost like academic in a sense. Uh, Paul's just explaining uh, this idea about God's sovereignty. Uh, And so unless you have the full context, it's really challenging to understand. And then even once you do, uh, it's still challenging. So so we'll do our best today. Let's catch up on chapter 8, though. John Piper says that Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the greatest book in all the Bible. I'm not sure what the criteria are and how you establish a hierarchy, but uh, but it's pretty pretty powerful stuff. And I think understanding Romans chapter 8 is a complete game changer. Changes, changes our worldview altogether. So really quickly, I just want to give you a few things that we learned in Romans chapter 8. Chapter 8 verses 1 and 2, we learned that we... We overcome sin and death definitively, completely and exclusively through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's 100% done deal, and it's exclusively done through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Second thing we learn, Romans chapter 8, verse 9, is that sin has lost its grip on us. We, we come into the world with a, a sinful nature, but sin has lost its grip on us. And so now... In Christ, we're no longer defined by our sinful nature. We're defined by the Spirit of Christ, which now dwells within us. That's our defining, defining characteristic. And we talked last week about how sin isn't just simply behavioral, right? When we're, when we're sort of under control of the, uh, of the sinful nature, we can't resist the urge to pursue our meaning, our purpose in life, in things that don't satisfy That's why we tend to just hop from one thing to the next because other than God through Christ, nothing else can bear the weight of being the source of my ultimate fulfillment. So we learn that in Christ, sin has lost its grip. Now we're defined by the Spirit of God that lives in us. Thirdly, chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, we learn that because Jesus has bridged the gap between us and God, we're not just cool with God. We're not just good. We're not just good now. We're children of God. We're adopted into his family. We are his children. We share through the spirit in both the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. We're co-heirs with Christ. Chapter 8 verse 28, one you definitely want to uh, want to look into, says that God is for you. Um, he's, he, he doesn't just like you, uh, he's for you. He's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. The called according to his purposes part is going to be really important when we talk about chapter 9. But God is for you in Christ. Fifthly and last, we learn that God's love for you cannot be undone or minimized in any way by any circumstance. So no matter how big of a jerk you were this week, Flav, God's love for you remains the same. It cannot be undone. That's sort of mind-numbing if you think about it, right? Because we we function on kind of an emotional level. And uh, we might still really love something, but our affection can kind of fluctuate. God's can't be minimized in any way, by any circumstance. You can't undo it. God's love goes one direction. It goes from Him to you. It doesn't matter your performance. He doesn't love you based on your merit, which is a good thing because Paul just spent eight chapters telling us we don't have any merit. God's love goes one direction, from Him to you. You don't earn it. And this has been the prevailing theme through the first eight chapters of Romans. The first three chapters, Paul just simply said, none of you all are good enough. You can't earn it, so give up. Really encouraging, But his point was, it's one way. God loves you regardless of merit. It's not that God loves us when we're good enough. And I've said this before, mainly just because this sort of blows my mind to think about this. It's not that God loves you on your good day, the days that you'd be proud of. That moment that you would be most ashamed of if everyone here knew about it, God loved you on that day too. That's pretty pretty perplexing stuff. That's pretty incredible. Chapter 5, verse 8 says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This should be a tremendous relief, right? I know it is for me. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus only died for bad people. He only died for sinful people. Because that's all that there are. When we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love by paying the penalty for us. Now, there's a couple of implications of that idea. The first one is, nobody gets to say, not me. Nobody gets to say, I'm too bad. I'm too sinful. Uh, you know, God doesn't want me. Nobody gets to say that. Because Christ died for sinners, which is a boat that we're all in. Nobody gets to say, not me. When people say that, it, it kind of means one of a couple of things. It means... Uh, possibly they just don't really understand the gospel. I mean, maybe they legitimately feel like they do have to earn God's favor. Uh, so so maybe they don't understand, and, and, you know, we can't blame someone for what they don't understand. But it could also mean that when someone says, oh, not me, I'm too bad, God doesn't want me, it could just be them saying, I have no intention of submitting to the idea that God knows better than me, which is pride, the bad kind, right? And, and we've all been in that boat in one way or another. But nobody gets to say, not me. The second implication of Christ dying for us while we were still sinners is that it means that God's love and his mercy and his kindness and his care for you, he gives those things because he's awesome, not because we're awesome. I do think you're awesome, don't get me wrong. But God loves you because that's what he does, because he loves, because he's awesome. And it's not contingent upon me being awesome to make sure that he still loves me. I can't tell you what good news that is. You don't have to earn it because it's free. This is really important to understanding chapter 9. It's it's not up to you to keep God's favor. It goes one way. He did the job of giving it to you, and he'll do the job of maintaining it for you, sustaining it. This is completely the opposite of how we normally think in our natural sense. Now, there's a pretty obvious objection to this, right? Someone will say, okay, listen, Kelly, if you keep telling everyone that it's free, uh, and they don't have to earn God's favor, well, then people just can do whatever they want. People just feel like, well, God has to forgive me because of Jesus, so here I go. Uh, Paul actually already answered that objection back in chapter 6, uh, which is only like a page and a half, but it was about three months ago for us. Uh, <laughs> Paul already answered it. This is what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, should we just sin more so God can pour out more grace and be more awesome? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? In other words, you can't submit to the sinful nature and to the Spirit of Christ at the same time, they can't both be your master. It doesn't mean that you won't struggle against sin. This is something that has just really confounded me, or did for for a really long time. Um, Just this idea that, okay, I'm dead to sin, and I'm controlled by the Spirit of Christ, but if I'm dead to sin, how come I still sin? This doesn't mean that we don't sin anymore, but what it does mean is that we fight against it. When we're controlled by the sinful nature... And, and the Spirit of Christ does not live in us, what it means is, we're just in the flow. We're just going wherever the sinful nature takes us. Now we're paddling against it. So it doesn't mean that you stop sinning. Uh, in fact, it means that you struggle against sin, probably more than you did before. We're not magically perfect, but now we're moving in the opposite direction. If you're just going with the flow of the sinful nature... Uh, that's one thing. But once, once we're dead to sin, now we're fighting the opposite direction. <clears throat> so chapter 9, we come to, and after all the feel-good talk about, uh, about God just saving us because we couldn't save ourselves, Paul takes the conversation to kind of an uncomfortable level, uh, a place that, uh, that a lot of us just start to feel a little bit weird about. He begins to expand on the sovereignty of God, the idea that God is in control, And this is an idea that Christians have done battle over uh, really since uh, the 1500s, since the Enlightenment. Uh, You just have this this camp over here who says, okay, God's sovereign over everything. And they got their list of Bible verses, including these ones. And then you got this camp over here who says, oh, free will, we choose. And they got their list of Bible verses. Uh, I'm going to leave it up to you to decide where you fall uh, in the middle here. But um, I think our dispositions as Americans influences our thinking. And uh, so I just want to sort of drag that out so we can at least be aware of that. We like controlling our own destiny, right? In our culture, the individual and individuality has a pretty high value in our culture. Uh, there's pros and cons. There's really great things about it, for sure. Um, there's probably some things that are, that are negative. But what I will say is that individuality is, is an American ideal. It's not a biblical ideal. Uh, In fact, you could just go to other cultures in the world and they don't even value it necessarily uh, in the way that we do. Uh, I'll just give you an example of a way that it's a bad thing, just a practical one. Uh, In America, for a lot of people, I would say maybe even a majority of people, their ideal situation is to move to the suburbs and put up a six-foot fence so they don't have to talk to their neighbors. That's individualism. I'm going to put up my walls, right? Whereas in other cultures, we see like, there's like 30 people living in a... 40 square foot hut. Like, that's, just, that's just what they do. Uh, America has really moved from what my friend uh, Dr. Sitzer calls um, a front porch culture to a back patio culture. Um, and it's our, our value of individualism that does that. It's why uh, if you commute to work down I-90, you'll see just thousands of cars with one person in them. That's something we value. And we, we like our freedom and we like our independence. It's not all bad. Uh, but what I am saying is we can't just apply that idea to what we know about God. Because what will happen if we do that is God will be completely different to each person in this room. And he'll just be the sub, he'll just, God will just be the sum total of all the ideas that I think God should be like. When the truth is God's told us what God is like. And so when it comes to theology, the idea of just having an individual theology... It's not, a biblical, it's not a biblical value. It's, it's an American one. So it's not bad. It's just something to be aware of when we start talking about the idea that God is in control. What we do with our individuality is we want God to be in control when we need him. But then when things are cool, we want to have control. And I don't know that we can have it both ways. Paul says here, God's always in control. Whether you know, you're, you're aware of it or not, God kind of has a handle on what's happening here. This should be really, really good news, because if you're like me, uh, there's a far greater chance of any situation panning out well if God's in control than there is when I'm in control. Uh, occasionally I'll get it right, but usually I'm winging it. He's a little more farsighted than I am. He kind of sees what's coming. So even though that idea makes, most se- uh, you know, makes a lot of sense to us, we still get in the spot where we, we want to maintain just a little bit of ability to call our own shots and that's you know that's just our disposition in our culture. So in order for us to get our heads around this chapter 9, we really have to understand who we are as Americans in valuing individuality and you really have to understand 2500 years of Jewish culture uh, which we're not going to necessarily take on. We're just going to hit the bookends really quickly. So let me read a few verses to you. Chapter 9 beginning in verse 1. This is what Paul says. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in, my, in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. Who is God over all praised forevermore? Amen? It is not as though god 's word had failed for not all who for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. The essence of what he 's saying is that here you have Israel, the Jews uh, if you're familiar with the Old Testament narrative they were god 's people god 's presence dwelt with them. God promised that the Messiah who would be a blessing to uh, to all the people of the earth would come through their family line, if you will. Uh, they had every advantage. But Paul says, just because someone was, a, was born a Jew doesn't mean they get it. It doesn't mean they actually know God. If they're just banking on their family history and their genealogy to somehow make them an insider, just because you're born a Jew doesn't mean you're actually a Jew, is what he's, is what he's saying. They had everything necessary to succeed by every measure. But they fail because they think they can earn God's favor through keeping of their religious laws and their ceremonial this and that. And Paul says, just because you're born into that doesn't mean you actually have God's favor. Now, if you read ahead in this section, which we're not going to do, God defines success in a very different manner than we do. almost, Almost every time. Think about how we judge ourselves successful in our culture, right? We, we value our education, uh, our occupation, uh, maybe financially, uh, our appearance. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that we could sort of gauge success, but mostly we gauge our success or failure based on other people's success or failure, how we, how we stack up. This is something that's really troubling to me. Jesus is a failure by almost every one of those standards, have you ever thought about the idea that, like, like uh, I'm, I'm a pastor, okay, so people will look at a church that has, like, 10,000 people there and be like, well, they must be doing something right. You know, Jesus had, like, 150 followers when he died. And I'm like, they're doing something, but it's, I don't know, it's different than what Jesus thought was important. I'm not saying that's bad or anything. Uh, I'm just saying, by our standards, Jesus didn't stack up. He didn't even have a job. He had no place to live. He didn't own anything. By our standards, he was a failure. And that's really uncomfortable for me who lives in maybe the most affluent culture the world has ever known. Uh, that's that's troubling. It makes me think it's possible that the worst thing that could happen to my soul is to be warm and comfortable and safe and well-fed. Uh, I can't think of anything that would sort of make my soul just curve inward on myself and be like, yeah, I'm good. Things are fine. Uh, sort of disconcerting. That wasn't where I was going. But but Jesus Jesus doesn't stack up by our standards. So maybe the things that I'm most proud of, maybe they're the things that are actually the least significant to God. That's a really hard thing. That's a hard mindset to just sort of crawl out of and have a lot of clarity. But But maybe they don't matter at all outside of my head. Perhaps when Jesus says... He says things like whoever is the least among you is the greatest in my kingdom. I tend to read those sentences really fast and move on to the next one. I don't know about you. I'm just bareing my soul here, but maybe I need to think about whether or not my actions agree with what I believe. Like are those are those my actions and my beliefs are they moving in the same the same direction? It's troubling for us. So now you know why this chapter starts to get ...a little bit uncomfortable... ...and Paul makes this example... Uh, ...if you were to just keep reading over the next few sentences... ...he talks about the pride of the Jews... ...he says... ...just because they're born Jew... ...doesn't mean that they're heirs to God's promise... ...just simply by their genealogy... ...and he goes on to make the point that... ...only those who rely on God's grace... ...instead of their social status... ...or their gene pool as Jews... ...only the ones who rely on God's grace... ...to receive the promise actually receive God's promise. God's not the least bit impressed by their social status, or in their case, for a lot of them, God's not impressed by their moral superiority, uh, which if you read through the Gospels, you really see how they viewed themselves as just on a higher plane than everyone else around them. God just wasn't impressed. As someone who spent a lot of my life in church, I have to freely confess, there have been many situations when I've been around many people when I've thought, of myself as morally superior. I'm not as bad as that person. I probably didn't think it in those terms, but I probably saw what they were doing and just was like, that's a dumb choice. You know, just holding myself to, to uh, maybe just a higher value, I guess, uh, of myself. But, but Paul goes on to demonstrate something really interesting. Consider this. Maybe my moral superiority is actually not making me a friend of God. Maybe my moral superiority is actually making me an enemy of God. Maybe my dependence on God is what makes me his child. Remember I said earlier back in in Romans chapter 8 that through Christ we become children of God. We're not just good with God, but, but when Jesus pays the bill for us, that's how we become children of God. Maybe my high view of myself is actually making me an enemy of God. And maybe my dependence on Christ is how I become a child of God. And Paul demonstrates this in the idea that God uses the weak to confound the strong. The poor to confound the rich. The, the simple to confound, confound the wise. That's how God operates. He does everything opposite of how we naturally go. And we just have to be careful of how we view ourselves and how we view success and how we assign value to others. Because God works in the opposite manner that we do. Think about it this way. Where else in life is someone going to say to you, if you want to be really great, work your way to the bottom of the ladder? (laughs) Who else is going to say that? I I don't know of anyone. Or if someone was to say, you know, if you really want to be viewed as successful, just live humbly. Just get the smallest house you possibly can. Just have the bare necessities. If you want to be really successful, just be humble. If you want to be significant, if you want people to think, if you want to matter, place others ahead of yourself. That, that's just not the kind of language we're using anywhere else in society. God functions in the opposite direction that we do. And he's pressing towards some another, just uh, maybe a deeper layer that's even more uncomfortable here. Paul is. Um, he's pressing towards this doctrine that's known as election. Some people use the phrase predestination. They're sort of, sort of interchangeable. He's driving toward this notion that when it comes to your salvation, you're a passive agent. I don't want to be a passive agent. But Paul says when it comes to your salvation, God's doing all the work. The work. I think we probably would be mostly okay with that idea. But then he goes a little bit deeper. Not only is God doing the work of your salvation, but he also chose you for salvation before you had the capacity to make a choice at all. Now, if you read through chapter 9, and we're just going to get really convoluted if we try to comb through every word of it, uh, but you can read it. He, He expresses the same idea, he makes a few good examples. Uh, He uses the example of Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael is the older son. In their culture, the older son gets the father's blessing. The older son rules the household. Uh, Everything that the father has is passed on generationally, whether it's wealth or authority, possessions, uh, whatever it might be. uh, It's passed on to the older son. But God says, nope, the younger son. Isaac gets my blessing. Completely upside down for them. Paul uses in chapter 9 the example of Jacob and Esau. This one is pretty crazy. God actually said before they were even born that the older would serve the younger. And then he went a step farther and he made them twins. And the younger, who was uh, the frail one, right? If you're familiar with the story, Esau was like manly and hairy and killed stuff. He's basically awesome by, you know, their standards. Ishmael, he liked to bake. Not Ishmael, Jacob. Jacob liked to bake. He hung out with his mom a lot, which is cool. Uh, But, you know, they probably didn't think it was all that cool. But guess who received the blessing? God said, the older will serve the younger. Here's one that troubles so many people, including myself. This is just a hard one to get your mind around. It's, you'll read it in chapter 9. Uh, <clears throat> Paul points to the fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh had the, the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, and Moses went and said, you need to let God's people go. And the Bible says that, Pharaoh har- that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would resist God. That's kind of troubling to me, that God would harden Pharaoh's heart in that way. But it says that God God hardened his heart to reveal his own glory. A lot of us hate this idea. As Christians, uh, we really, some people even work really hard to just redefine what Paul's saying right here, just to give us a little tiny bit of free will, like just to give us a little tiny bit of responsibility. Uh, but, But Paul doesn't really leave room for that in here, right? He's We're comfortable with the idea that somehow we contributed something to the process by choosing God. God did all the work, God did everything, but I chose him. The problem is it doesn't really say that anywhere in there. I'd like to believe that, but it's not there. Romans 12, verse 3, which we'll be be coming up to here in a few weeks, tells us that even the faith to believe in God is distributed by God. Even the faith to believe is a gift from God. Stick with me. We're just about through the hard part, and then we'll close with the good news. So, so Paul's tackling this idea that God is just plain sovereign. That's just it. Uh, in order to get rid of that idea, you would have to erase some pretty massive sections of the entire scripture. Uh, Paul's just making no apology about it. Uh, I, wanna, I just want to explain two things about this, this idea of God's sovereignty. One is I just want to explain why we can trust it. Um, because it is, it is debated. Uh, people, people argue about it. It's not a very comfortable idea. Um, but I just want to explain to you biblically why you can trust it. And then the second thing is why it's really good news. So first, the Bible in several places, including right here in chapter 9, uh, it states the idea of election. Basically what that means is our salvation was God's choice, not ours. That's the idea that he's, that he's expressing It can't be argued away um, unless you just cut pieces of the Bible out. But what Paul's not saying is that God dictates your every move. You have no free will. You're all robots. You make choices. By the time you go to bed tonight, you'll make a thousand of them. You make choices every day. I Personally, I'm a coffee drinker. My wife doesn't like it. We make choices all the time. Some are really small, like what coffee we drink. Some are really big. Okay? Paul's not saying that you're just robots and God just, God just pulls the strings on everything we do. But if we were to back up the choices, right? Just keep, keep working them back before we, we chose everything. You were born with a disposition. You were born with a nature, right? A, a personality, whatever you want to call it. I'll use the word nature, right? Your nature informs your desires and your desires inform your choices. Well, you didn't ask for the nature you have. Right? If I was just choosing, I probably wouldn't be so irritable. But what are you going to do? It's what God gave me to work with. Right. Your nature informs your desires, and your desires inform your choices. Now, maybe you're a checklist person. Right. You've got a plan. You've got a long-range thing. This is where I'm going to be in 20 years. Maybe you're a person who likes to wing it. Maybe you have no plan, and if you did, it would just feel weird. Well, you probably didn't ask to be that way. And the truth is, you probably think the other side is wrong... Uh, but it's okay. You can just give that person a break because you didn't choose your disposition. God, God gave it to you. We make choices, but they're informed by our desires, and our desires are informed by our nature. Now, I know there's some psychoanalyticals in the room, and the Bible has an answer for Sigmund as well. Consider Acts chapter 17, 26. It says that God decided when and where you would live. So yeah, Nature's a factor, but nurture's always also a factor, right? Your environment determines some of your desires. But God chose what your environment was going to be. Proverbs 19.6 says, in, the heart, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. So not only does God decide your nature before you're born, you know how He's saying it, but he also decides your environment. The point is that we can trust in God's sovereignty. We can trust that God's in control. Not just when we need him to be in control, but that he's always in control. And I don't, I don't personally think, you know, just as I sort of decode everything that's in the Bible, I don't personally think that God's biggest interest in all of the universe is to micromanage all your decisions. But I do think he has an end result in mind. And I think that's really the point that Paul's getting at. Um, and that's a lot lighter than God dictates everything. Having God in control is really, really a good, good thing. A lot of Christians resist the idea that God's sovereign because they say it eliminates me and my free will from the equation. But for the life of me, I can't figure out why that's a bad thing. Because if there's one thing I'm really good at, it's making a bad decision. Right? If there's something that humans are just super skilled at above everything else, it's messing up a perfect plan. Maybe that's not you, but I'm fairly sure that's all of us. That's what we're good at. If we're honest, we're just really good at knowing what to do and then doing something else instead. Or knowing what not to do, but still doing it. That's that's what we're really good at. But if God's in control, my humanity can't get in the way. The fact that I'm good at screwing things up can't get in the way of where he's taking me if he's in control. So let's put it this way. If you were going to put a new roof on your house and... You had the option of hiring Mike over here, who's been a contractor his entire adult life, and uh, he's willing to do it for free. If you had the option of choosing him or Flav, who saw a YouTube video and thinks he might be able to figure it out, (laughs) who are you going to go with? You're going to go with Mike. I mean, that's not even a question. Well, that's kind of the same comparison between me plotting my own course or God plotting my course for me. Like, I don't really see how it's a bad deal that God's in control. I think that's a really phenomenal thing. Why in the world would we not be okay with letting God have control of our lives? If God is sovereignly in control of my salvation, that means it's not going to get screwed up. It can't be screwed up if he's in control. If I'm in control, then I have to work for it. That sounds unfair. It sounds unfair, this idea that God chose me to be saved before I was born. I had no say in the matter. Is what that feels like. That sounds really unfair. Um, and I can understand. I can understand that objection, right? God chooses me without my consent. The, I can understand how people would object to that. The trouble is, if it's up to me to choose God, and it's up to me to go His way, then I'm earning it, right? Then I'm doing something to earn it. And if it's up to me to earn it. Even if I'm doing something small, like mustering up my faith, if it's up to me to earn it, then I'm right back where I started, attempting to earn salvation through good works, rather than just simply surrendering to the control of God. And that's going to bring us to the big idea, which is at the close of chapter 9. And this is unbelievably encouraging stuff. God bless you, Read Verse 30 says, What then shall we say? Right? That's the conjoining statement. After all these examples he gave in the Old Testament, he says, What then shall we say? What should we make of all this? This is, the, this is the point in chapter 9. That the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it. A righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's not fair. The Gentiles didn't pursue it. They didn't even want it, but they received it. I shouldn't say they didn't want it. They weren't even aware of it. The Jews have been in the machine for millennia. Like, they're, they're tight with God. They have God's law in their possession. They have the temple worship. They have all this ritual and this religious system built out to please God. The Gentiles weren't even looking for it. And Paul says, they received salvation because it was by faith. And the Jews are just chasing their tail. That's not fair. They're working really hard for it. The Jews really, in their day, were the modern-day equivalent of the church folks. Which, you know, that could be some of us. right? That's, that's who they were. They lived implicitly by the idea that, okay, God is fair... I'm a good person, therefore, God must like me and he'll bless me. But Paul is saying, no, God's not fair. He's just, but he's not fair. And those aren't always the same thing. See, we tend to think that God will do something because it's just. He'll do X, whatever that is, because it's just. But it's really the other way around. It's just because God does it. Does that make sense? We don't get to establish our own, our own hierarchy or our own ideal about what's just. God's, God's not fair. He's just, but he's not necessarily fair. We want God to be just. It's a good thing because his wrath was satisfied when Jesus died on the cross for me. Justice was served. And I go free. We want that. It's good that God is just. But it's also in our best interest that God be savagely unfair. That's Paul's point. It wasn't fair that the Gentiles, who haven't done anything to earn God's favor, have received it. But the Jews, who were ferociously religious, didn't. It's not fair. But here's the big idea for today. God's unfairness is our only hope. God routinely, consistently, continually withholds what we deserve... And gives us mercy that we don't deserve. And I'm so thankful that he's unfair in that way. And way too often we'll read verses like what we find in chapter 9. And then we'll just argue about predestination versus free will. But the truth is we're just dependent on the fact that God's unfair. That what I deserve, he hasn't given to me. He's unfair in the most glorious way possible. Consider this. Jesus was really offensive in his day, right? When you you read about his interactions, like he had a lot of confrontation with with religious people. But but unlike today in our culture, people view the church as offensive because of who they're keeping out. Jesus was offensive because of who he let in. It's completely upside down. Jesus shared this message, people people hated him because he was a friend of sinners. That's completely opposite. The only people who got left out were the people who were self-righteous, who thought they could earn God's favor. It's completely backwards from what we see today, the view of the church in our culture. In our culture, people find the church offensive because they feel left out. We need to be offensive because of who we leave, who we let in. And when I say we, I'm, I'm talking locally, right here at Center Church. We need to be offensive because of who we let in. There are people in my life, um, we're just playing difficult, right? You know, the EGRs, the extra grace required people. It's easy for me to let the good people in. I can tease Flav because he's really easy to like. And I'm glad you're in, by the way. But I need to be better about letting people who maybe don't belong by our standards in. You know what I'm saying? I need to be offensive by who I let into my life and who we let into our church family. And that's, and that's not a condemnation. That's a, let's live like Jesus. Because I know that's your desire too. I know that we're in agreement on that. Because you know who Jesus let in? You. Me. He let in the sinners. It's not fair, but I'm really glad. I'm really thankful. The thing that should shake us the most and push us to gratitude, the thing that should make us want to sing at the top of our lungs, even if we sound bad, is the fact that God lets in sinners. Jesus died for bad people. He died for sinners. That's all there are. All of us are there. Some of us feel like I go through stages in my life where I feel kind of reasonably put together. You know, not, not perfect, but, you know, I don't feel like life is a complete mess sometimes. But if we're honest, we all have those dark places. We all have those places that just aren't worthy. We all have that day that we'd be most ashamed of. For some of us, it's more days than others, but Jesus lets us in. Christ died for the ungodly. Here's what I love about Jesus, and this is it. This is I'm done. He's a bottom dweller. You look at his life, he was just a social bottom dweller. I don't like to think of myself as a social bottom dweller, but when I look at Jesus' life, I'm probably closer to the bottom than I think I am. When I read about Paul saying, you know what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm probably closer to there than I I think I am. But guess what? That's who Jesus came for. And that's what makes the gospel a beautiful thing. We live in a world full of people around us who need to just understand that.